Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the Gospel of John. As you know, we've been making our way through this. I think we've got about three months under our belt, four months, something like that. And uh, I think we're still on schedule to be done in June of, of uh, I guess, this year now, not next year. And uh, uh, if you remember, in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Jesus made the claim that he was the light of the world. Do you guys all remember that? That's good, because it's only been two weeks ago. If you don't remember that, like, we gotta, we got to talk. But here's the thing. When Jesus made that claim, he was, it, was, it was outrageous to the Pharisees, right? Because they understood what he was claiming. They understood that he was making a claim to deity. But in today's passage, as we make our way through it, not only is Jesus going to make this claim again, but he's going to demonstrate that it's true by healing a man that was born blind. But the thing is, the real miracle isn't that the man was physically healed from being born blind, but the reality is that his spiritual blindness was healed as well. And the same is true for each and every one of us. Every person that's ever lived since Adam has been born blind, born in spiritual darkness, but Jesus is the answer. And if we put our trust in him, him being the light of the world illuminates our path and he allows us to see. He's the one who opens our blind eyes. Amen. And at that point, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's not only the light of the world, but he is your light. Amen. So we have a bunch of stuff to get through today. This is one of those unfortunate passages where we couldn't split it up too much because it's one big story. And if we split it up, then it would, it would lose the impact. But that means I got a lot to get through today. So no distractions, unless you want to be here all afternoon. <laughs> so let's go. John 9, 1 through 2 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind so you got to think when you read this it seems like a weird response i mean we would never say today like man that person's blind he must be a terrible person but in this day and age the the problem is, is is blind people are in a tough spot one they have no choice but to be beggars the truth is is that we've really come a long way in our ability and willingness to ensure that people that have any kind of handicap of any kind are able to work and fulfill their full potential and, uh, you know, it's funny that, that we, people claim to, that we live in a, in a country, a society today where, man, I guess the U.S. is just the worst. But the reality is, is that, that people in the U.S. have it better now than, than people have ever had it in the history of the world. And you even see this now, truthfully, in third world countries right now, this luxury isn't afforded. And many are still required to beg to earn a living because they don't have this, the same systems and structures in place to make sure that people that even have these kind of, of disabilities are still able to fulfill their full potential. Another thing that was common in those days was that if somebody did have something wrong with them, if there was any kind of disability or any kind of, uh, of thing that would be outside of the norm of what they considered uh, a normal human would be, then that was because that they had done something awful. They were a sinner or their parents of sin. This was pretty commonplace in that time. And even the disciples, you know, they've grown up in this and they have this line of thinking. They say, Rabbi, they're talking to Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents? Because obviously if he was to be blind... He must have sinned or his parents must have sinned. And this is interesting because he was born blind. When did he have time to sin (laughs) before he was born? But the thing is, as I was studying this, it turns out that there were actually rabbis teaching that you could sin in the womb. 
I'm not sure what you could do in there, but uh, it was considered sin. But that was some of the teaching, that somehow you could sin before you were born. And, and the thing is, is that this was so common back then. Think about the story of Job, right? Do you remember what happened with Job? Job's life gets flipped, turned upside down. I'm about to take a minute, just sit right there. Oh, just kidding. Different, different. <laughs> yeah, stop letting me get distracted. I'll never get through it. But think about the story of Job, right? So his friends weren't very supportive at all when he was being attacked by the devil. And we know, when we read the story, that it wasn't anything that Job had did. Matter of fact, Job was a righteous man. And the devil had his chance to have a go at him. And all of his friends, they all assumed it was because he was a sinner. He did something terrible. They kept pointing it out. And Job kept going and saying, no, wait a minute, I'm innocent. And, and it's, a, it's actually a fantastic discourse back and forth. And then finally Job is, is actually getting a little bit upset. And, and then he begins complaining. Then God shows up. Can you imagine God showing up to your complaining and saying, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Fantastic story. And, and man, I don't ever want to be in that position where God has to come out and say those things to me. But they all assumed that he had did something wrong to put himself in that position. Now, don't get me wrong. As we live our life, we've all done plenty of stupid stuff to put ourselves in pretty awful positions. But the devil had nothing to do with that. That was your own stupidity. And if you're honest, you can admit there's some dumb things you did in your life that put you in that position. God didn't, the devil didn't have to show up. You did a good, fine enough job yourself. But... The reality is, is that every time something is wrong in our life, if we get sick or something happens or born with a disability or any of those things, it doesn't mean that there was sin. It doesn't mean that, that something happened to put you in that position. The reality is, is that we live in a fallen world. And these things are all the result of living in a fallen world. Matter of fact, in Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is waiting to be remade because everything's a mess. It turns out sin didn't just affect humans, but it infect, infected the entirety of creation. And because of that, we see cancer, we see sickness, we see disabilities, we see all of these things because of the fall. And the entire world is waiting for redemption. And then in verse 3 through 5, it says, And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. See, every time something happens, but he doesn't mean because the person sinned. In this case, it was not even this man or his parents that sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's that claim again. So Jesus' answer confirms to us that, that all sickness, all disability, all of this stuff isn't always the result of sin. Matter of fact, it says here, it's not this man that sinned or his parents. But the thing about this passage here is I think this passage has left many people confused when you read it. Because if we're not careful, it almost looks like God made this man blind and suffer for however many years this is just so God could make a point when Jesus walked the earth. That's what it almost reads like, right? It's not that this, this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's like God, God struck him with blindness just so God could do a mighty work in him later. And there's a couple of problems with this line of thinking because I don't know about you, when I read this, this seems totally out of character for God. It's not in alignment with anything else we see, particularly in the New Testament, with how these things go. 
So I would challenge you that anytime you come to a scripture that seems to be out of alignment with the, the rest of, of God's character, the rest of the scripture, the, the, the issue is more than likely we're not understanding it properly. I would challenge you to take a closer look. So let me tell you this. Did you guys know that the original Greek has no punctuation in it? No punctuation at all. All capital letters. It's like an English teacher's nightmare. The whole New Testament in Greek is like one long run-on sentence. No punctuation at all. Then, when it got translated to English, because we use punctuation, it helps us to understand how words meaning and how stuff goes together, we put punctuation in. So the apostles that wrote this the, the, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they didn't put punctuation in. Men later, doing the translation, put punctuation in. Also, just to, if you didn't know, there was no uh, chapters and verse numbers in the original Bible as either. That was all put in later to make it easier for us. So let's look at these same words, and since there was no punctuation, that means that, that, that we're actually free to read it a little bit differently. So let me show you this. What if it reads like this? Jesus answered... It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now before, it says, or his parents, comma, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, period. What if it read like this? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, period, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Isn't it interesting that when you change the punctuation, the entire meaning of the whole scripture changes, at least how it's translated in English. And if you do it this way, then all of a sudden, it's in alignment with the rest of, of God's character. When you look in the New Testament, particularly on how it deals with healing. So the reality is, is that it's not that this man sinned or his parents, that's just full stop. The, the reality is, is we live in a fallen world. Sometimes people are sick. Sometimes people get cancer. None of this is God's will, and none of this is God doing it to people so that he can prove a point. But the reality is, is that if we look at it this way, it makes much more sense. Anytime that we see Scripture that seems to contradict itself, we need to take step, step, a step back and realize that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It's probably us who are understanding it a little bit incorrectly. And then another thing that I think we should take from this scripture is, is really what I think Jesus is focusing on here. Jesus is saying, listen, don't focus on the problem. It's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned. You guys are looking at the wrong thing. Instead, we should start focusing. And this is a good advice for us. Instead of trying to focus on the, the, the problem, the, the, the reason why we're going through a trial, change your perspective to think about it as what can God do in the midst of this trial? In the midst of our worst trials, what can God do to use it for his glory? How bad our situation is does not impact God's ability to completely turn it around. It doesn't matter how bad it is. We don't serve a God that's, that's only so big, he can only do so much. There's not a problem that is so big that God can't do something about. Jesus is about to change this man's life. And I'm not talking about his eyeballs. You see, that's a good thing, right? It's pretty awesome that he, that he was blind. and, and, he's, and he's, Oh, by spoiler alert, he's going to get healed in a second. Sorry about that. But it, not, only is, uh, uh, not only is he, is he going to be able to see physically, but as we go through this story, Jesus opens his spiritual eyes. 
And he actually gets saved. He puts his trust in Jesus. How many of you know that that is so much better than any physical ailment situation that you're going through right now? The light of the world was about to make him see. Amen? And then in verses 6 through 7, it says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. (coughs) Throughout his walk on earth, Jesus healed tons of people. And oftentimes it seems like he uses these weird and different methods to heal different people. Now the reality is, is usually he just spoke to people and told them to be healed. But there are a few times when he did some different things. Now, you guys remember in, in Matthew 9 when he healed the two blind men? How did he do that? He actually touched their eyes. How many know that Jesus doesn't have to touch their eyes to heal their eyes? In Mark 8, he healed a different blind man by putting spit in his eyes. How many of you guys want to be healed like that? Can I pray for any of you guys? In Mark 7, he healed a deaf man by putting spit in his ears. And in this case... He mixed spit with dirt, makes mud, and puts it on the guy's eyes. You know, I wonder, why does Jesus use all these different methods? Maybe it's because he doesn't want us to get so hung up on the method. It's it's not the mud that made this guy's eyes healed. It's not the the spit. It's not the the touching of the eyes. I think Jesus didn't want to make anybody get hung up on thinking that that somehow it was Jesus' spit that... uh, healed like i mean if man if we can't get a hold of a a vial of jesus spit then i guess we're going to stay blind forever i think that he did it to give people an opportunity to express their faith you see if you came up for praying prayer after the service say you wanted some healing and i come up i'm going to pray for you and and as soon as you close your eyes you put your hands up and you hear (laughs) you are going to have to really trust me Otherwise, you're opening your eyes and you're out of here. Like, I'm not coming back to this church. They do some weird stuff. Can you imagine if these people would have turned tail and ran because Jesus did some weird stuff? You know, so often, and you'll hear me say it a couple times today, but we, we, we tend to define our, our, the Word of God by our experience. We tend to, def- to, to tell God what He can and can't do. Listen, if, if God wants to spit in your eye, I would recommend letting Him. It's turned out pretty good for everybody else so far. But that's the thing. Is, is we, we, we have this idea of how things are supposed to work, and it, and, it, and it messes us up. But I think Jesus is giving these people an opportunity to express their faith because as soon as you, you hear spit on the ground and some mud and you put it on your eyes, I mean, you have a choice to make. You either trust the man that's doing it or you run away. And the, and the thing about this is, is, did you guys notice when he could see? It wasn't when Jesus put the mud on his eyes. He had to go to the pool. He had to be obedient. Go to the pool and then wash his eyes. I mean, can you imagine if he's like, what is this guy doing to me? He just spit in my eye. You know what? I'm going home. I'm not, I don't have time to put up with this stuff. This is rude. This is disgusting. I mean, what kind of prophet would do something like this? I don't want to be part of a church where people would do stuff that seems weird to me. I'm out of here. What if that's the attitude that he had? But he, didn't, he, he decided to trust Jesus. 
instead of going home, instead of disregarding this weird practice, he decided to trust Jesus, and he went to the pool, he washed his eyes, and he came back seeing. The reality is, is that any time that we want to experience one of God's promises or a miracle in our life, our faith plays an important role. We have to trust that God is who he is, says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. The reality is, is that our faith is important. And then in John 9, 8 through 12, it says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. Listen, guys, I just told you I didn't get my sight until I went and washed my eyes. How would I know? I was blind when he put this to me. <laughs> Silly questions to me. But think about this. A notable miracle had just happened. And now people are starting to notice. Wait a minute. What is it this that just happened? And now we have his neighbors, the people that know him, the guys that are around him. And they're, they're, they're starting to react to this miracle that had just taken place. A man had just received his sight. And it's so strange to me, yet familiar at the same time. And here's what I mean. We have these people that see this miracle, and you know what they don't do? They don't rejoice with this man who can see. He was blind since birth, and now he can see. You would think that everybody that knew him was never, they would be so excited for him. I'm like, man, what's wrong with these people? But I see it all the time. You know, like somebody gets a promotion at work, instead of being happy for the person getting promoted, they're upset because it wasn't them. Or somebody finally gets pregnant and, and, and another couple, instead of being excited that this couple got pregnant, they're upset because they, they're struggling with it right now. It seems like it's a, a little bit of who we are if we're not careful, if we're not born again and let God's love and life live through us that, that we, instead of rejoicing with others, we, we, we get upset when they're blessed. The skepticism, it turns out, isn't a new phenomenon. One of the things I notice as I read the scripture and you read about history is that, that technology changes, but people don't. So the, they, we see him reject, re reacting, and instead of rejoicing, they're, they're, they're looking skeptical at him, and, and then they say, well, fine, if it is you, how did you get your sight back? And I, I love his response because it's so simple. He's like, listen, the man named Jesus anointed my eyes with mud, he said to go wash my eyes, so I went and washed it out of my eyes, and then I could see. And I, I love the simplicity of this phrase because it's one that can be easily translated for us. Now, now this is something you should write down because this will change your life if you'll, if you'll start doing this. I did what Jesus said, and I received what he said I would. Simple. Do what Jesus says, and you'll receive what he says that you will. Like I said, so many of us are defining the Bible based on our experience. And people say that miracles aren't happening or healing can't happen or, or you know, the, the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. All of these things because somehow in our experience, particularly in the U.S. where, where you know, we, we've really beat down into people that the supernatural can't happen. We're taught that from we're little kids in school. We've really beaten this into people. And we wonder why don't we ever see miracles because we've been, we, we, we tell God that they can't happen. 
We have no faith for these kind of things. We try to define what the Word of God says by our experience. And that's why you get people saying, oh, no, the gifts of the Spirit, they were just for back then. They're not for today. Because there's no indication in the Bible that they're not for today, but based on our experience, we're going to define what that actually says. When we read the Scripture and it says that everyone who came to Him was healed, and we say, oh, no, some people are supposed to remain sick today. Because that's our experience. We define our, our, the Bible based on our experience. When I, I would challenge you, stop doing that. Start defining your experience by what the Word of God says. If Jesus says to do it, do it. And you'll receive what He says you will. I think Nike should make a Bible. Right on the front, just do it. That would, if we just had that advice right on the front, hand somebody a Bible, just do it. <laughs> Life would be so much easier. And the thing is, is like I've experienced this reality in my life in a different area. When I was in high school, I was very good at math. But I noticed that I handled math a lot differently than a lot of my classmates did. See, I went to class, and the teacher would put the formula on the board and said, this is what you do. And I went, okay. And I just did it. <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to do. I, just, I didn't question it. This is, this is what they're telling me. I'm supposed to do and and because of that I would get the answers right because I just did what they told me I didn't but so many others they had to know why does it work why does you know I don't believe that this is true and and they struggled because they didn't just do it (laughs) just do what it said to do what the teacher told them to do now when I was in college I started moving up to the maths and did calc one and calc two and I even got into vector calc that's when I started caring about how it worked but the interesting thing was is I still just did it, and then I looked into how it worked. But when I just did what they told me to do, it worked. I didn't have to think about why. It just worked. And, and I think that's the way God's Word should be applied as well. Just do it. In the beginning, especially when you're young, just do what it says. Now, I'm not saying that there's not value into studying deeper and to figuring out how all these things come together. There's value in that. But I think at first, just do it. Listen, if Jesus says to do it, what do you do? You do it. (laughs) And then, as you grow and mature, you dig a little bit deeper. And then you get to find out why it is how it is. But when you get hung up on that in the beginning, and you start saying, no, that can't be, because my experience says something different. No, no, that can't be. That doesn't make sense. I mean, this, this must be impossible. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus would have to spit in this guy's eye for him to be healed. And then, you know, why, why with the woman with the issue of the blood, all she did was touch Jesus' garment. Why didn't Jesus, you know, hock a on her? I mean, it's, it's not for us to explain. The reality is, is these, are, these are people just expressing their faith. She already expressed her faith. She went through a crowd and touched Jesus as him. You see, I, I think we should dig in and, and learn and want to know a little bit deeper, but I think you should start the simple way and just do it. Amen? Amen. And then verses 13 through 15, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it, is, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, How had he received his sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. So basically... Neighbors went and told on them to the religious leaders. They were either jealous or, I don't know, maybe they were excited. They, they just wanted their, 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 
their uh, pastors or teachers, like, hey, listen, look what just happened. This is amazing. You should check it out. Or maybe they were upset because they were skeptical and they were saying, who is this guy? And, and, and then they wanted to go tell them, I don't, I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. It doesn't say. We just have to make some assumptions. But the thing is, is that can you imagine if something miraculous happened to you and everybody went to just find some way to take it from you, went and told on you, went and, and I mean, can you imagine if a supernatural miracle happened today instead of people rejoicing, they wanted to snag you up and putting you in, in a scientific facility so you could be studied and you lost your entire life? It's just a completely different way of thinking. We should rejoice with those. Instead of having scheming behind people's back, trying to drag them back down again. Let's just keep lifting people up and rejoice with them. And Romans 12, 15, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those whom God has blessed. Don't try to drag them down. And then you'll notice that it points out that Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath. You'll notice that Jesus often does stuff on the Sabbath. <laughs> the thing is, is he's trying to make it clear to everybody he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 23 through 28, which is another time, and this is actually where Jesus makes it real clear, clear. In verse 23, it says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as he made their way, his disciples began plucking heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? And when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, I think Jesus did a lot of stuff on the Sabbath because he's trying to make a point. He's like, listen, your, your religious uh, uh, structures, all of your the, the stuff, all these, these traditions and all the stuff that you're going through, this is not what I'm concerned with. And I'm even Lord over all of those things. But because it was the Sabbath, the uh, Pharisees are very interested in what he's doing. Because the very act of him spitting on the ground and making mud, this, this act of kneading clay, making mud, like that's him working on the Sabbath. And oh, he must be a sinner if he's going to mix some mud on the Sabbath. They wanted to see if Joseph broke the, the Sabbath by healing this man and... and and they, they believed that he did. So they get the story from this man. Listen, here's what he did. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. And then he goes on in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind men, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. You see, now Jesus has gone and done it, according to some of the Pharisees, because he's broke the Sabbath because he mixed together some mud. He had broken their rabbinic rules and regulations. See, what happened was is God created the Sabbath, and over time, men created more rules and regulations and all of this stuff to, to try to add to it. And, and they missed the whole point of what the Sabbath was about. But because he had broken their rules and regulations, because of this, Jesus must be a sinner. I mean, if he was willing to make mud and heal somebody, what an awful person. 
But then there are others who aren't convinced because they're thinking a little bit straighter. A little bit of logic comes into the picture. And he says, listen, how can this man who is a sinner do such signs? Like if he was a sinner, do you think that God would actually work with him? So because of that, there, there ends up being division among the, the Pharisees and the Jews of the time. But it's always interesting to me when, I, when you look at this is that they've already made up their mind about Jesus, so they're more than willing to overlook the obvious evidence that Jesus was providing that he is who he says he is. <coughs> but the evidence was enough for this man. And they said, listen, who do you say about him? What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. You see, this man went the simple route and said, well... I agree with you. If he was a sinner, God wouldn't work through him. So, so he must not be a sinner. He's probably from God. And, and he opened my eyes. It was a miracle. This is, this is an incredible miracle. Matter of fact, in a couple minutes, the guy's going to say, this has never, ever happened before that somebody was born blind and someone made him see. In the history of the world, this has never happened. And this man did it. So you know what? I think he's a prophet. This is just simple logic. The problem was is the Pharisees they continued to think that he was a false prophet. The problem was is they refused to see the evidence. They refused to see what's real. And we see people do that all the time today. You can show them the evidence for God. You can show them the evidence for the crucifixion. You can show them the evidence for the resurrection. You can show them all of these things, and yet they still refuse to believe. That's one of the reasons why when you're talking to somebody that wants to debate really hard, one question you should ask them is say, listen, if I could prove to you, if, if, we, if we could prove that Christianity was real, Without a shadow of a doubt, would you become a Christian? And so many people will say, no, I'll become a Christian. I don't They're not actually looking for truth. The problem is, is if, if it were true, their life would have to change. Same for these Pharisees. If, if Jesus is true, their life's going to have to change. And the truth is, they kind of like things the way it was. And in verse 18, it says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received <laughs> You know what? The miracle couldn't have happened. He must have not actually been blind. Already making excuses. So they called his parents, the man who had received his sight, and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. That's a little cop-out right there, by the way. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So like I said, the Jews continued to ignore the evidence. So, oh no, he must, not have, he must not have actually been blind. Because listen, if he never really was blind, then a miracle never really took place. And then we can just continue saying Jesus is a sinner for doing these things on the Sabbath. And it would allow them to continue on in their intentional disregard and contempt of the truth. But much to their dismay, when they spoke to their parents, it turns out this was the guy that was born blind. And they begin grilling the parents. And they were afraid to say anything more than yes, this was their son, and yes, he was born blind. Though they wouldn't say who Jesus or who had healed their son, which kind of indicates to me the fact that if, if they're just not telling it, that they actually probably knew. But they just didn't want to say it because they were afraid of what 
the Pharisees would do to him? You see, if, if they were to admit that Jesus had healed them and somehow claim that Jesus was anything other than a sinner to these Pharisees, they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, it's really easy for us to read this and go, man, what spineless little, like, why would they be like that? But the reality is, is that you don't actually think of yourself in their position. Like, they don't have all the answers yet, right? This is the first experience with Jesus. They don't know the truth. And their whole life is wrapped up in the synagogue. And if you get put out of the synagogue, this is the end of everything. This isn't just like a, a, a minor inconvenience. You see, sometimes faith in Jesus is going to cost you. And, and in the U.S., we have it so incredibly easy. There is actually really no downside or any harm for your decision to follow Christ save you work in Hollywood, maybe. You might get a few less jobs. But for these folks, there was. To be put out of the synagogue is to be put out of your life. Like, everything changes. And in the U.S., we have it so easy. And actually, the truth is, I think in some ways, that this actually isn't good for us as Christians in the United States. Because in the U.S., if, if, if somebody is living in sin and the pastor confronts them, it's all too easy for a person to go, you know what, I'm just going to go to the church around the corner where they'll let me do whatever I want. I'm going to go to the bigger church because at the bigger church, I'm just a number and, and, and maybe I'll slip through the cracks and nobody will notice me. I don't want to be at this church where people hold me accountable. So people get offended and they just jump somewhere else. And I, in some ways, I think that's a bad thing. You know, see, for the Jews... For them to choose to follow Jesus, there was no going back. It's not like you could decide to follow Jesus and then say, you know what, I don't like this, and go back to your old synagogue. You were done. That, those, that, that bridge was burned. When you decided to follow Jesus back then, you were all in. You know, it's actually much like that for Muslim people today. We hear stories of all the time where people will come to Christ and then we find out that their, their family is actually trying to kill them. I've heard stories of that for the people, that, the Pastor Jack Harris and, and uh, uh, where, were the, is it, uh, where were those tents that they put up? Pastor Jack had all, huh? As the city of Mosul, they had basically for the for the, the caravans of the, of the migrants that were coming through, the Muslim migrants they had all these tents set up, and there were stories of people giving their life to Christ and then family members trying to kill them. See, when they decide, when, when a Muslim decides to follow Christ, in many cases, they're all in. There is no going back. They've made that decision. They're all in. You see, when you make the choice to follow Jesus and it burns every bridge behind you, you are all in. And, and we just don't, don't have that here. You just go to another church and stay incognito for as long as you can. And then if, if it's a good church and, 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 and they're, they're, they're following biblical teaching, then, then they notice you, they're going to call you out for the same stuff, and well, you just go to another one. But the thing is, is that I think in some ways, the, the other way should be how it is. In Luke 9.62, and this isn't just my idea, by the way. This is what Jesus says in Luke 9.62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Church, we should be all in. Amen? 
And in verse 24 through 27, it says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> See, apparently meeting with this man for the first time didn't satisfy the Pharisees' curiosity, and they had to call him once more. They wanted to get, obviously, this man's a sinner, so they must have heard something wrong. So they're going to come in, and they're going to grill this guy again. They've already decided that Jesus was a sinner. They've already decided he was a false prophet. No amount of evidence could tell them otherwise. So now they wanted the man to agree with them as well. But the healed man, he holds his ground. He says, you know what? The only thing I know for sure is that I was once blind, but now I see. So then the Pharisees begin grilling him again. Well, then how did he do it? How did he make you see? Because to them, it was obviously it was something other than God. He was doing something, something evil, something wrong, like he was communicating to other gods. It had to have been some other reason that he was able to do this. Anything other than the power, because if it was the power of God, then their life has to change. And at this point, the man just doesn't understand. Why do you keep grilling me? Why, I've already told you this before. Why do you need to ask me again? And his response, just like it did all made you a little bit, it kind of makes me giggle when I read it. <laughs> Although, <laughs> the reality is, is that we read this as thick sarcasm by the guy. It probably wasn't. <laughs> like, if you think about it, you're in this man's shoes. Like, he's already in enough trouble for talking about this Jesus, right? He's probably going to get kicked out of the synagogue. He's going to get cast out. Matter of fact, we find in a second he is actually cast out. And, and uh, it doesn't say specifically that he wasn't cast out of the synagogue and never allowed to come back, but that's the, the impression that you're giving, and he's cast out. So <laughs> he's probably not being sarcastic. <laughs> he's, he, he's just, he doesn't want to be in any more scrutinization than he already is. He doesn't want to get in any more trouble. But the thing is, think about what this looks like from the outside looking in. These Pharisees, they just keep talking to anybody to try to find out more about this guy, Jesus. How does he do what he does? I mean, from the outside in, it seems like these guys are really interested in Jesus. This could just be a genuine response like, wait a minute, do you guys want to be his disciple as well? And then apparently that wasn't the right thing to say because whether he was trying to be sarcastic or not, it still offended them plenty. So in, in 28 through 34, it says, And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he... So <laughs> this kind of reads a sarcasm to me as well, but I think it's because I'm predisposed to sarcasm. But uh, I, I think the guy's actually being a little bit serious. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And see, this guy had a good head on his shoulders. He's looking at the evidence. He's like, this makes sense. And they said, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. You see, whether he was trying to offend them or not, the end result was that he did. And then they became indignant with him. He said, listen, you're his disciple. We're not his disciple. We're the disciples of Moses. 
And then their argument was that we know God spoke to Moses, right? Because they, they could feel comfort in, in, in being a disciple of Moses because they knew God spoke to Moses. But they didn't know where Jesus came from. And they were completely ignoring all the evidence that demonstrated who Jesus was and where he came from. And then when Jesus told them who he was, that he was speaking the truth. So the healed man, he, he doubles down on his testimony about Jesus. And he begins to preach a little bit. He says, this is amazing. You guys don't know where he came from, but it's obvious based on the evidence that he's not a sinner, that God is working through him. He healed me. And the truth is, is that, that this isn't the first time Jesus healed somebody. So this evidence is piling up. It's piling up. And this guy's like, this is amazing. No one has ever done this ever before. Nobody that's been born blind has ever been made to see again. And listen, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners so if he performs such an impossible miracle, <laughs> then he must be from God. <laughs> Did you just deny him? <laughs> just kidding, that only happened to Peter, not you. <laughs> See, I told you guys not to distract me. Where was I at? So here's the thing. The Pharisees didn't have time for this man's impeccable logic, right? He, he doesn't have time to, to hear any of this stuff. Uh-oh. I accidentally swiped my screen and I lost myself in my notes. Where are we at? 20 34. Um, they didn't have time for his logic and, and really the overwhelming evidence. So instead that they did what all people do when they can't handle an argument, they begin attacking the man. Yeah. Just so you know, if you're ever in an argument, that's the... The, the lowest common denominator of somebody who's, who's losing an argument is from being attacking somebody's character. So they resort to personal attacks against this man. They said, listen, you were born a sinner, right? Because he was born blind. Obviously, he sinned in the womb, and that's why he was born blind. So he was born a sinner. He was born in utter sin. It's like, and you would teach us? And then they cast him out. See, the irony is, is that they were accusing this man of being in the very situation that they themselves were in. That all of us are in without Christ. We are all born in utter sin. We are all born broken. We are all born in need of a Savior. We're all born slaves to sin. So they're accusing him of being in the very situation that they were in. And the good news is for this man is he's going to put his trust in Jesus. But they're going to be still in their sin. The reality is, is that we all need a Savior. Amen. Amen. And in verses 35 through 38, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and, and said, Who is he, sir, that I, might believe, I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So apparently news traveled fast back in this day as well, and Jesus hears that he's been cast out. And uh, Jesus found out, went and, 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 and hunted him down. He finds the man, and he asked the man, <laughs> Jesus doesn't come up to him and say, man, I'm so sorry that, that trusting in me made your life so hard. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm, I'm so sorry that things are a little more difficult. I mean, Really, I figured that if you trusted in me, everything would be awesome from here on out. One of the greatest services we can do when we're inviting people to trust in the Lord is to tell them that if they become a Christian, their life is going to be all lollipops and gumdrops from here on out. 
Because the truth is, it is not. You're still going to deal with situations. We still live in a fallen world. We still have problems. We still have issues. And we still need a Savior to get us through all those things. So Jesus doesn't come up to console him. Jesus wants to make sure that this man is not stuck in his sin that he was born in, but instead is going to be given freedom, that he's going to be able to see. So he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And at this point, the, the, the man, he doesn't know who the Son of Man is. He, does, he says, listen, who is he? Like, I don't know a lot of things, but you came. I believe that you're a prophet, right? Last we heard is he believes he's a prophet, that God speaks through you. So listen, I trust you, so tell me, who is this Son of Man so that I can believe in him? And Jesus says, it's me. So this man goes ahead and puts his trust in Jesus. And when he, when he finds out that the Son of Man is Jesus, he says, Lord, I believe, and he began to worship him. And we see this incredible journey of faith that this man takes. Because, right, the first thing is, is he, I would say he sees Jesus as a healer, but that's in his mind's eye. He sees Jesus as a healer. He doesn't see yet. So he sees Jesus as a healer. Jesus heals him. And the next thing that we find out is that, that he sees Jesus as a prophet because he saw the miracle that happened. And then the next thing is that he argues that Jesus actually was sent by God, right? It's, it's this level of growth. He's a healer. No, he's a prophet. No, he was sent by God. And then finally, he puts his trust in Jesus. And he says, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. As an aside, this is one of the many instances where people worship Jesus and Jesus doesn't reject them. He doesn't push them away. He accepts it. This is one of the many proofs that Jesus is in fact God Amen. because he receives worship. You look at any other case in the world, right? The angel came down. Remember in, in the book of Revelation, the angel shows up and John falls at his feet and the angel's like, no, 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 get up, get up. Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Do you remember that uh, uh, Paul was getting, trying to be worshiped by all those people and they tore their clothes and said, listen, listen, I'm just normal. Listen, nobody accepts worship except God. And Jesus, every time people worshiped him, he received it. He never told them to stand up. And then we'll go ahead and finish here in verses 39 through 41. It says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Anybody else have trouble following this line of reasoning here? This is a confusing statement, huh? It almost seems like, well, first we'll start with the first issue that some people might have. One, it almost seems like Jesus is contradicting himself. He says, for judgment, I came into this world. Anybody see the contradiction? Because in chapter 3, Jesus, uh, John says, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus says this in chapter 3. Wait a minute. God didn't send the Son to judge the world, but now Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world. It almost seems like he's contradicting himself. But if you actually look at what's going on here, Jesus is not referring to judgment for sin here. What is Jesus dealing with here? Seeing and not seeing. The issues with the Pharisees, being blind. He's not dealing with judgment for sin. What he's, what he's really doing is, is judging those who, who, who claim to see. They said, listen, you claim to see, but you actually can't see. You're blind. That's what he's judging is this claim that they're making. Basically, in other words, he's, 
he's pointing out their, their deficiencies in their current beliefs. He's pointing out the spiritual blindness. That's the judgment that he's making, that they are spiritually blind, not judging them for their sin, because Jesus isn't coming back to judge sin until his next coming. He is going to come back and judge sin, but that's not what he was here for in his first coming. So, in this way, for him to, to judge those who claim that they could see and point out how their belief is incorrect, he was actually going to make them spiritually blind. Right? It says, For judgment I came to this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What does this mean, that those who see may become blind? He's, he's talking about people that think that they can see. He wants to point out the deficiency in their beliefs so they would become blind. And see, this is actually a good thing, that they would become blind, because when they're finally blind... And they can actually put their trust in the light of the world so they can finally be able to see. See, that's a, that's a, a good thing. Until you actually understand that you're blind, until you actually understand that you need Jesus, you actually understand that you're a sin, sinner and you need a Savior, then you can't actually put your trust in the light of the world. This is why it's so difficult sometimes to reach people who claim to be good people or they claim to not be sinner. What do you mean, I'm not a sinner? It's really hard to reach those people because they refuse to believe that they need a Savior. They're blind, even though they claim they can see. We just need to get them to realize that they're blind, so that way Jesus has an inroad in their life because they're blind to the reality they need a Savior. And that's why Jesus responded in such a weird way. The Pharisees said, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is using this word blind to mean two different things. First, there's blindness to spiritual reality, which they are. But they claim to be able to see. So when he's speaking here, he's speaking from their perspective. Listen, if you were blind according to your perspective, it would be better for you. Because if you realized you were blind, then... You would have no guilt. Why? Because you could receive Jesus Christ. And he, his, the guilt that was taken upon him. But because you say that you already see, your guilt remains. And it's because they can never put their trust in Jesus if they already think that they're good enough. Right? So instead, they continue to ignore the evidence so they can maintain their status quo. Because if they... If they begin to believe him, then their life would have to change. The same reason so many people today reject Christ. Because if, if they agree that, what, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that they need a Savior, and that he needs to be their Lord, then their life has to change. Amen? Amen? So church, let's just go ahead and make sure that we're not so presumptuous to think that we can do it on our own, but let's continue to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen?